When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you the Brinklins Frightfest preview podcast. Welcome to another Brinklins.com podcast. Frightfest preview series and today we're talking about one of the documentaries that are going to be on there this year and that's King Cohen, The Wild World of Female F- Filmmaker Larry Cohen and I've got with me director of that documentary Steve Mitchell. Hello Steve. Hey good day, good day, how are you? I'm all right. The day the day's closing on me in England, but I'm. Yes, that's true. There is a there is a time difference. <laughs> you're you're my third person today talking on the on the on the west on the specific uh, standard time today. It's. Uh, mm-hmm. I feels like I'm. I feels like I'm in your morning, but we're just joining. You're just about to get to afternoon very soon. Uh, it, it's still it's still kind of my morning. I'm a little bit of a late riser, so uh, you know, bear with me. Okay, now now a lot there's a lot in the title that tells us what it's about. But do you do you want to give us what you what you consider to be like your synopsis of what King Cohen is as a documentary? Boy, you know it's 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 a simple question. I don't know if there's a simple answer to it. But basically, what I wanted to do was create a portrait of an interesting creative artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always been a fan of Larry's, and uh, this. Uh, project got started one day because of the IMDb, and uh, I was looking something up, and I just noticed that Larry had a ton of credits that I was not aware of. He's, he's like a I monster. Said, was, he's a monster as far as film goes. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 a beast. I mean, I, I I make a lot of jokes. I call him the Energizer Bunny, actually, because he got started when he was uh, he was seventeen, uh, writing live television in New York City. Oh really? And he has any yeah, in the late fifties. And he hasn't stopped. He still writes every day to one degree or another. I mean, uh as a guy who sat behind the keyboard and, you know, pounded out some scripts, you know, uh that's not easy, but he makes it look easy. In fact we reference it in the film where uh, a writer actor talks about that and, you know, he uh uses a choice expletive and I'll, I'll say I'll save that uh, you know for the viewers they can they can enjoy the joke because it's funny, but that's Larry. Larry is Larry is a, a machine. He uh, in, in fact uh, uh, Joe Dante calls him an idea machine. And uh, so getting back to answering your question, basically uh, I was kind of really impacted by the, the volume of what Larry did that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was producing DVD special features, uh, you know, and commentaries uh, at Image Entertainment. And I said, you know, this this looks like fertile territory to do a documentary. And uh, I went to some of the powers that be, and and an image which sort of exists in name but doesn't really exist any longer. Their attitude was, gee, Sam's interesting. Why don't you make it? Maybe we'll acquire it. Because everybody in the film business, I'm sure you know this to one degree or another, you know, if, if something costs $10, 
they want to buy it for maybe two dollars. <laughs> and but but I wasn't daunted by that. I just decided. I said, well, let me see what this thing is going to cost. And I worked up a budget, and it looked like it was going to cost more than I could put together at the moment. But I was still very intrigued by Larry as a filmmaker, and you know, not only what he did, the amount of what he did, but it was when he did it. And I think the thing that really always was at the back of this project, well, the back of my mind, my thick-headed mind, and it uh, was, this guy has done something no one else has. Like, he was shuttling between mainstream TV and feature writing and producing his own independent movies. And his movies were basically independent. I mean, even though most of them were released by, you know, major studios, a lot of them were done kind of independently. He's certainly independent in the truest sense because Larry, you know, controlled everything. Larry delivered the product that he wanted to deliver. So, you know, I thought about that, and I said, I don't think anybody's ever done that. And and I that was really at the crux of it, why I wanted to tell his story. And then when I got to meet him, I found out that he was just a very interesting character. And movies, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, you know, I think live and breathe on interesting characters. And Larry was, and it was, and still is a very interesting guy. No, I get, I get that. It is, is uh, and I guess, I guess what you're what you're observing there is something that's like almost like perfectly normal now with the whole birth of Netflix and Amazon. You know, David Fincher does a TV show, does a film. Soderbergh does a film, does a TV show. It's all very normal, and that. But but you're right. Back when he was sort of traversing the two the two mediums, that wasn't normal, was it? No, it wasn't normal. And I think what happens is that. Back in the day, you were stigmatized by what you did. Okay. Um, I think I think certain certain actors shuttled back and forth between features and television, uh, and those actors were usually character actors. I remember I did a, a commentary track with Richard Anderson, who was probably most famous for being on the Six Million Dollar Man TV show. Right. But I was aware of him from you know Forbidden Planet. I was aware of him from Seconds, John Frankenheimer's Seconds. He was also in uh, Kubrick's uh, Paths of Glory. And then just all over the place uh, doing character work. And when I was talking to him, you know, he had said to me that at the time television was gaining in popularity, you know, people who were working in studios on features, they thought of it, they called it the boob tube. They thought it was entertainment for idiots. No one took it seriously, but Anderson did. He just said, I'm an actor, I want to work. And so he basically made himself available for television, and he was always available for films, and he had quite the career. In fact, I think literally minutes before we got started here, I noticed it was like his 91st birthday. Wow. And, you know, he had you know, just, I, I guess part of the theme of this conversation is longevity and shuttling back and forth between mainstream and uh, uh, television or independent films. But I'm fascinated by that. And while you make a great point about Fincher and other people, today the stigma with television isn't the same that it was back in the day. No, that's what I'm saying. Larry, yeah. I was just going to say, but Larry didn't care. Larry was always going to do what he wants. I mean, one of the things about Larry, and, and you know, I think this is a byproduct of the picture, is you see a creative force with a very strong will. You know, Larry's attitude always was, well, I'm going to do what I want. And somehow he managed to do that and do it for half a century, which is pretty amazing. You know, I'm, again, I, I can't think of, of anybody else doing what he did for as long as he did. Yeah, and, cause, and, you cause, know, that's also, that's a tribute to him as well. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's part of what the movie is about. It's, I was going to really say, yeah. I was gonna say, and it's an industry where people rarely get to do what they want. So for someone to have carved out half a century largely doing what they want, that's testimony of itself, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's a huge testimony to... You know, force of will, uh, but also Larry never ran out of ideas. I mean, I I know a lot of creative people, and I know a lot of writers, and I know very few people who literally have that many stories in them the way Larry has. Now, 
I've read some of Larry's unproduced scripts, and I think some of them are good, and I think some of them probably were first drafts, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, that's, not, but that's not the point. The point is that he just continues to churn out stories, and he has ideas. Um, and for him, it's really just being a creative, you know, I'm going to use the word machine again, a creative entity. He is just a creator. He is a creative person. And, you know, he doesn't have to worry about money per se. But I think in today's world, and uh, this is a thing that I talk about a lot with people, is that everything that's done today is life and death. I know guys who make $200,000 movies, it is life and death for them. And then, of course, people go out and make $200 million movies, and it's life and death for them and the studios and their investors and stuff. The thing that was great about when Larry made movies was theaters needed product. And low-budget pictures, B-movies, sometimes C-movies, managed to get theatrical releases. I grew up in New York City, and one of the things that I always found interesting, walking around Broadway when it was Broadway, the famous Broadway where, you know, there were, I don't know, about 13 movie theaters within walking distance of one another. Um, Some of the biggest theaters, the best theaters, which would show A-level pictures, on a slow week, on a slow week with a studio picture, they may pull that studio picture and put in a B movie. Perfect example. Uh, there was a theater in, in, in New York called the Low State, and the French Connection played there, and the Exorcist played there, and the Godfather played there, and all you know, the greatest movies of the time. But mm-hmm. you know, I remember one time in the '80s, one night I was walking up Broadway, and and a movie from Crown International called The Beach Girls was playing there, <laughs> and it was literally plugged in for a week. Well, listen, I like B movies as much as A movies, so I said to my buddies, "Well, we got to go see this." And so we went to the Low State one night for the ten o'clock show, which is I think at least the five hundred seat theater, if not more. And we watched The Beach Girls, had a a, a ragingly good time. And there are about seven other people in the theater, which just made it a very surreal experience. But that just goes to the fact that movies got into theaters. Whether people saw them or not, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but, movie, but, but B movies made it into A venues in certain cities, as well as drive-ins and you know, grindhouse theaters. And so what happens was Larry made movies that got seen in the theater today. Larry couldn't make, you know, the Larry Cohens of today are lucky if their movies get on Netflix. No, it's very, sure. very different. Well, you know? what's, what's interesting also looking at what you say is he's, he's a man that doesn't seem to run out of ideas and is, is, is an idea machine and story machine is that he also manages to do stuff that's, that's also transgressive and groundbreaking, you know, in, in, in in, 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 and, you know, crosses between genres and stuff. So you think of, like, like Bone or God Told Me, God Told Me, um, God, God Told Me to. You know, these films were, were kind of, they might on the surface appear to be quite normal, and then when you start to pick them apart, you go, Jesus, there's a lot more going on here. He's, he's saying a lot more than just, here's a, here's a thriller, here's a drama, you know? Well, that's Larry. I mean, and I noticed that, over the years, just watching his pictures. I mean, my favorite Larry Cohen picture is Cue the Winged Serpent, which is a a genre mashup, if ever there was one. You know, a flying serpent flying over the city of New York, which, of course, you'll pardon the pun here, is red meat for a guy like me, because I love movies shot in New York. Right. But it's also a, a, a New York street crime picture. It's also kind of a police procedural Mm-hmm. You know, and you say, okay, all right, you got the cop thing and the, the street crime thing, and then you got a giant the serpent flying over the city. And you go, wait, what? And Larry's movies are very wait, what? He, he throws, he does lots of genre mashups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when I was, <laughs> I was, I was taking actually a very good screenwriting course, you know, though, years later, you know, you know, I realized those were, quote, double genre movies. Well, Larry was doing double genre before, you know, you know, James Cameron did it with Aliens, you know, because Aliens is a monster science fiction movie and a war picture. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, Predator is a jungle war movie and a monster movie at the same time. Those are the two handy uh, examples that I have. There are probably many others. But Larry was doing that before 
uh, anybody else was. Um, and I think, listen, I love Larry's work for the most part, but I don't love all of it. You know, I won't tell you the movies I don't like, but here's the thing about Larry's pictures. They're not empty calories. You go see a Larry Cohen picture, you will be engaged. There will be some ideas. Uh, the execution, depending upon when the movie was made, might be a little raw around the edges. But that also goes to what Larry does as a filmmaker. His movies have, um, especially his, his early pictures, are not really slick. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Larry had any continuity people on most of his early films. You know, he was just, you know, shooting what he thought he needed and figuring that he would make it work. But it all goes to what a Larry Cohen picture is. You know, at the end of all of his features, you know, there's a single card that says a Larry Cohen film. And some years ago, I was I was writing a screenplay with uh, with a buddy of mine, a guy named Bob Sheridan, who the movie is dedicated to. He's not with us any longer, which is very sad. Very sad indeed, yeah. That's, yeah, and so before we got started working, you know, it's like, what you watch last night? Or what, you know, you know, uh, there, there was usually an hour's worth of getting caught up. And so he said to me one night, one day, he said, so I saw this Larry Cohen movie I'd never heard of. And I said, what was it? He said it was called Perfect Strangers, okay. which is one of Larry's kind of underground New York thrillers. He did a pair of them back to back. But he did that in a movie called Special Effects. And I hadn't even heard of it. And I said, so, well, how was it? You know, what was it like? You know, and he, and he paused for a second. He said, it's a Larry Cohen film. And I knew exactly what he meant. You know, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And Larry was, and this is symbolic of the times, too, a very idiosyncratic filmmaker. You know, when a movie said a Sam Peckinpah film, you knew what it meant. If it said a Hal Ashby film, you knew what it meant. You know, Stanley uh, Kubrick, of course. You know, there's so many, all these, you know, William Friedkin. There are all these filmmakers, their name told you or at least gave you an idea what the experience was like. Well, that's Larry, really, you know, perhaps maybe even more so, because he was doing the movies completely his way. And, you know, how many guys can you say that about today? I was going to say, Tarantino, Besides Tarantino and maybe David Fetcher and Scorsese to some degree. Well, no, it's a rare, it's a rare thing where somebody's style becomes a way to describe what a film looks like. It's, it, they're, they're, there's not a big queue of those over the, the 20th century, so the fact that people use that as a descriptor tells you everything, I think, about what he's achieved, doesn't it? It does, and, and I have to say that I miss that. And one of the kind of byproducts of the picture is that we celebrate that to some degree, mm -hmm. that, that that kind of filmmaking, you know, personal filmmaking, I, I miss it. I miss it, you know, and I miss it on every level because there were B guys, you know, B-level guys whose whose names, you know, told you something. I mean, the late, the recently lost and and and, and dearly departed George Romero. Yeah. The guy the guy started out doing C-level movies. I mean, you know, Night of the Living Dead in many ways is a home movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. You know, at his level, you know, you, you say it was a George Romero's, and you go, okay, I got an idea what that experience is going to be like. John Carpenter was, of course, another guy like that, mm. and I miss that kind of filmmaking. And Larry was really a, a, a big part of that, you know, being part of that that you know idiosyncratic filmmaking crowd. And in Larry's case, the thing that made Larry stuff even more personal is he wrote everything. Mm. You know. Roger Corman is famous for being the king of the bees, and I would not take that away from Roger. Roger earned that, earned that title in many ways. But Roger didn't write his pictures. Larry wrote his pictures. So everything in that movie was coming from the creative loins of Larry Cohen. And again, I, I look at the movies that are being made today or even things that are be done, being done for television, and I don't see a lot of that. I mean, I'm seeing more idiosyncratic value in a lot of TV shows, you know, because the showrunners dictate sort of the, the, well, they dictate the content, of course, but the sort of the, the creative zeitgeist comes from them. It's their vision. It's, it's their ideas that they want to put on the screen. 
Now, this, this this won't be atypical of uh, of what people maybe point out, pick up with Larry Cohen, but one of one of my favourites of, of screenplays he'd written was uh, was for the film Bestseller, and mm-hmm. with James Woods. And this may be weird to, to you coming from a Brit, but when I when, when I was fortunate enough to go to LA for the first time, I I went to the WGA library so I could read the screenplay. Of bestseller because I'd never I'd never mm-hmm. got hold of it. I knew the film. It was a film I, I remember watching as a kid when, when you know in, in in my VHS days, and then I got hold of the DVD as an adult. And it's just it's one of those films I have an affection for. I couldn't you know I can't explain to you exactly why, but yeah, one of one of the things I did when I was in LA was go and get a read of the of the screenplay I'd written for bestseller, which you know <laughs> there are, there are millions of others I could have done. <laughs> Listen, I love I love it when I hear stories like that because you know it mirrors my my feelings towards certain movies. I mean, um, I think when something just works for you in a way that might not work for everybody else, it makes it personal. And your experience with that movie was personal. It wasn't just as an objective, you know, audience member sitting there munching on his popcorn mm. or you know you know chewing on Twizzlers or something like that. Yeah, you know that movie spoke to you. You know, and I like that picture. I think that's a wacky, nutty movie. And I think I think John Flynn did an interesting job directing that film. But I always kind of wondered what Larry's version would have been. Mm. That's you what know, I was looking at um, with the screenplay. You can see you can see all the changes that were made from script to screen. It's really interesting. Yeah, and 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 what and I wonder what draft you read as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't remember exactly, but yeah, there was there was a, the, this. You could see where. Where maybe production or the directorial vision had downplayed some of the set pieces that that that, that Larry had written in the screenplay. You know, I mean, John that John Flynn directed that picture. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I like John Flynn. I think John Flynn is one of those those underrated guys. I mean, John Flynn was a really good director who I I don't think ever quite got, you know, quite got to the launching pad into an A level career, but. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, he's a genre stalwart. I like his pictures. I mean, you know, uh, Rolling Thunder being a, a really good example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, but, you know, the other a, a parallel version of what you just talked about, you know, Larry directed about a week of uh, I, the Jury, the Armand Asante, my camera movie. And we talk about that in the picture. You know, that Larry's idea was that my camera could be uh, an ongoing action uh, series for features. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has been on television. You know, Darren McGavin did it back in the day, and and then Stacy Teach uh, became uh, you know rather famous, you know, more of a household name uh, when he did the Mike Hammer TV series uh, here in the states, uh, which was uh, I think on CBS, our major network. But you know, Larry had this idea because. Uh, years ago, he had read a review in the New York Times. Uh, one of the A-level critics was talking about Dr. No. And he was saying that the Bond movies owed a lot to Mickey's Blaine's My Camera. Now, that was his opinion. I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. But Larry probably said, oh, maybe what, maybe I can get make a series out of it. But a series of features, not a TV series. Right. And, and so, you know, Larry got financing and he started making it and he and the producers didn't get along because Larry was sort of hired. You know, Larry does not play well with others, you know, when it comes to making movies, especially because he produced so many of his own pictures. Right. And so he got fired. He got fired from the film. But the movie still got made. You know, the casting that was in place was, was still the same casting. And what happened was, you know, Richard Heffron, who was a I would call a crafted TV director. I mean, Heffron did some features, not a lot. And I think he was better than average than a TV director, but he was never quite anything more than that. And his feature career never really went anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I thought he did a swell job with I, the Jury. I love I, the Jury. In fact, I, I love it so much I've done a commentary track for it uh, you know, recently on Blu-ray. And my my fondness for that movie is just unabashed. You know, I just I think it's one of the great, you know, it's a great New York movie. It's the best Mike Hammer movie. It's a great sex and violence movie. And I think Hathorne did a very good job directing it. And I think, well, what what would Larry's version have been like? 
And in some ways, it might have been better. And in some ways, I'm not sure if it would have been as good, you know, because Heffron really was good with the action. And Larry's, uh, you know, uh, all the movies that I've seen of Larry, certainly up to that point, I'm not quite sure he had the same level of craft when it came to doing some of the action set pieces. Hmm. But, again, that goes into that, that sort of weird subgenre of parallel universe movies. You know, I'm sure you've, you've had these, you know, you, you fantasize about what a movie might be like when you say, you know, what would Jaws have been like had Lee Marvin played the Quint? <laughs> you know, um, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time taking. My mine is. Um, do you know? Do you know the Australian film Waking Fright? I do not know that film. Yeah, Canadian uh, director did it. Shot in Australia, and mm. Brit- a, a no, a, a no name British guy got the lead role, and originally, okay. originally got funding, and it was going to be Peter O'Toole. So you can watch this movie oh. and go, well, what if Peter O'Toole had played this part? <laughs> So I know what you yeah, mean. It, I know it, exactly what you mean. It, you know, I get into huge arguments with a, with one of my very best friends up over Sunset Boulevard because Montgomery Clift was supposed to play the William Holden part. And, you know, I think Sunset Boulevard's strength is the fact that William Holden was basically destroyed by, you know, uh, you know by Laurie Swanson. Mm. And had Monty played that part, and that's the way my friend always refers to him. Right. I think that, you know, you see it and you go, well, this guy's doomed. Because, you know, Montgomery Clift always brought sort of a tragic quality to everything. Right. Well, Holden at the time was the extraordinarily virile, confident, you know, character. And then she basically pulls him into her web and destroys him. And that makes it a greater tragedy. But yeah, the whole the idea of the parallel universe. And so there are a couple of movies, you know, the other Larry movie, just bring it back to Larry, is that I wonder about his phone booth. Now, Larry made a lot of money uh, selling that script. Yeah. And it took a while for it to get on its feet, but it did get on its feet, and it was a big hit. That picture was a big hit at the time. And Larry's always saying, well, you know, if I had, if I had made it, you know, I would have shot it actually in New York. And, and I would have closed down a street, you know, in New York, and it would have had, you know, real New York texture. And I think Joel Schumacher did a great job shooting in Los Angeles and doubling New York. I mean, doubling the, the, the zeitgeist of New York. I'm very sensitive towards that. You know, because I'm from New York. I grew up in New York City. I know those streets. I know, I know what the people are like. I know the textures, the light. And Joel did a great job, I thought. Hmm. But then, you know, there's that concept of what, what would Larry's version have been, you know, and it becomes kind of an irresistible mind game to try and imagine what that would have been like. And, you know, that's Larry. I mean, but I was going to say, you, but, but also makes you think about that. Yeah, but also that, that screenplay now is is described as like one of the quintessential kind of models for the contained thriller, you know, how to make a contained thriller. Interesting. I mean, to write a story about a guy stuck at a phone booth doesn't sound exciting, does it? But but obviously, Larry managed to pull that apart, didn't he, and make it make it thrilling. Yeah, and he was, and and uh, one of one of uh, one of the guys who talks about Larry in the movie talks about how prescient Larry is. You know, that movie essentially predated. Uh, you know, we, we've had some incidents with snipers in the States. Yeah. And phone booth predated that. Uh, and, you know, Larry has come up with ideas that, you know, you go, wow, how did he know that was coming? <laughs> you know, Larry has a, there's a prescient quality to a lot of Larry's pictures. And, um, you know, that's what makes Larry Cohen Larry Cohen. He just... He has a great storyteller's mind, you know, and that comes from the fact that Larry originally wanted to be a stand-up comedian. So he's a performer. (laughs) Yeah. I never knew that. He did did stand-up. We talk about that a little bit. Okay. Uh, But he didn't want the lifestyle of a stand-up comedian. And, um, but, but Larry is a performer and that's why he understands actors. He loves actors, by the way. Okay. And um, so, 
there's the sort of performer sensibility. There's the idea guy sensibility. Larry has lots of opinions about things political. Uh, he has a certain, a certain amount of attitude towards sacred cows, you know, institutional things. But, you know, he, everything's fair game in, La in Larry world. You are listening to the Britflix Fright Fest Preview Podcast. In terms of what um, going in going in to make a documentary about someone, you kind of had a sense of who he was, and part of what drew you in, as you said, was. You couldn't believe the volume of work that, that he had, he was he'd given the world thus far, but yet nobody was right. discussing it as a whole. But what, from your perceptions of Larry going into the project, what was one of your biggest surprises that you had discovered from from his peers, from people that have observed his work? What what was the what was one of the most interesting things you learned yourself from the experience? Boy, that's you know that's that's a really fair question. What was my biggest surprise? Um, well, I think my biggest surprise was that he still writes every day. That, you know, at, at this point in his career, he doesn't have to do that. And he still does it every day. It's like he's, you know, he's a, an athlete or a, a bodybuilder. And he's, he stays limber by doing that, I think, by writing uh, all the time. Now, and he lives in a world where... There's no guarantee that the, those scripts are going to be made, but mm. yet he still does it. You know, some filmmakers might say, you know, I don't need to do this. But, you know, Larry doesn't play golf. You know, Larry, as far as I know, Larry doesn't really, you know, have any collecting passions. Yeah. He's very happily married. He and his wife have a great life, and I think they travel quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, his mind is always working. I'll tell you a story, which is, you know, we didn't cover in the movie, but it says a lot about who Larry is. Go on. And I, I think this surprised me, too. He doesn't drive. And decades ago, his wife said to him, Larry, I think you need to learn how to drive. Now, he's from New York City. People from New York don't necessarily learn how to drive. It might be the same with people from, say, London or maybe I was going to say, I live, in, I live in London. I've never owned a car. <laughs> All right, so, well, there you go. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and yeah, sure. So Larry, Larry was living here, and his wife, his first wife, Janelle, said, we're going we're to teach you how to drive. So they went to, I think, uh, a major street called Olympic Boulevard. If you know L.A., you know Olympic Boulevard. Okay. Hang on, I'm going to call for a second. <laughs> Pardon me. Okay. And so Larry got behind the wheel, and he started driving down Olympic Boulevard. Like I said, a major thoroughfare, probably even in the 60s. And his wife is watching him, and he's driving, and all of a sudden, she can see that he's, his mind is drifting away from the process of driving. <laughs> and he's kind of like not really addressing the road. He's not thinking about what he has to do. He's thinking about the things that really interest him. So she's, you know, she, they stopped the car. Nobody got hurt, thank God. Brilliant. And, and she said, well, maybe this is not the best. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, because that's where Larry, Larry's mind is always engaged in Larry stuff. It might be a better way of putting that, but you know what I mean. No, no, that makes that, and, that's, that's as good a way as any way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. So, so. He, I think maybe my biggest takeaway, and, and I think this is probably true with every filmmaker to one degree or another, is that, you know, Larry is not like anybody I've ever met. I've met a lot of filmmakers. I've talked to a lot of filmmakers. Mm. You know, Larry is Larry. Is Larry. And, you know, uh, that's what makes him unique. And to steal a line from Serpico, one of my favorite New York movies, it's what makes him uniquely unique. <laughs> well, can, can because... I ask you? Go on, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was going to say you, you, you're from New York. Larry's, Larry's oh, from yeah. New York, and, and, and clearly, that, that, culturally, that's an, a, 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 a shaping identity for someone in America. What do you think New York has given Larry that you can see in his work? What 
it gives Larry is I think there's a certain there's a certain understanding of the way things work on the street level. Okay. You know, Larry is very familiar with the pavement of that city, and he's familiar with what the rhythms and the uh, and the sensibilities are in New York City. I mean. You know, people ask me about New York a lot sometimes, and they say, well, New Yorkers aren't friendly. And I said, New York is very friendly, but New Yorkers are careful, mm. you know. And, you know, Larry sort of understands the sort of personality of, of the everyday New Yorker. He grew up uh, uptown, um, but, you know, the whole city was kind of his playground. Larry, I remember reading, God, decades ago, an interview with him somewhere saying that he lives the perfect life. He lives in Beverly Hills. He lives in the same house. He's had this house, like, forever. And it's, right. The house has been in all of his movies, by the way. We talk about that in, in the documentary <laughs> a little bit. And um, so he lives in California, but he works in New York. And his attitude has always been New York is the greatest backlog in the world. And if you know New York, and this is true for London, it's true for Chicago, it's true for you know, Paris or Rome, you know, cities where you can you can go to one corner and you can turn the camera in any direction and get a great shot. Yeah. You know, one of the things, just digressing for a second, but getting to the New York sensibility, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the show, the American show Law and Order, which I yeah, know yeah. you have a British version of Law and Order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because I knew the city, I would say, oh, okay, they went to that neighborhood, parked their trucks, and pointed the camera in four different directions, four different locations. That, that you have the ability to go to one place and milk it for a lot of different value. And each, again, each direction that you point the camera in can be a, a, a totally unique setup with great depth and texture and color, et cetera, et cetera. But Larry understood that. You know, Larry, you know, when he made his black exploitation movie, Mm-hmm. And the thing that I always found hilarious, if you know anything about black exploitation movies, most of them are made by middle class Jewish guys. <laughs> you know, very few black exploitation movies were made by black filmmakers. And but Larry, because he was a New Yorker, understood the street nature of uh, uh, the, the, his movies. You know, Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem are very New York movies. And when he made those pictures, he had no crew. It was, they literally had two taxi cabs. One was, I think, for the principals and for Larry, and the other cab was carrying gear. No trucks, no teamsters, no, no, you know, blocking streets off with cops or anything like that. Literally, and we talk about this in the movie, they're driving around. They say, I like this place. Let's shoot here. Well, they'd get out, and they would steal a scene. And right. sometimes at very famous locations, you know, no prep, no permits, you know, no cops. Uh, Teamsters were always looking for him because they were aware that he was in town, I think, because he had to rent equipment. You know, even though he was working pretty low budget, he was still shooting, you know, usually with Panavision equipment, Panavision cameras. <laughs> and so because Larry knew the city, he could do that. You know, if you have a guy who flies in from Los Angeles or flies in from London or, or, or you know, Paris or, or wherever to shoot a movie in New York, sometimes those guys need help on figuring out where to shoot the picture. Obviously, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Larry didn't. Larry <laughs> had a sense of the city. That's what, that's what makes Woody Allen so good in that, in that sense. You know, his New York movies are, you know, they're made by a guy who knows the city. You know, Woody knows his part of the city. Larry knows his part of the city. But Larry also has, has an idea like, well, why don't we go to this part of town and shoot something? So in a, in a, way, are you, in a way, you're saying that the, 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 the sort of New York sensibility sort of has lent Larry a lifelong, almost like pragmatism in, in sort of the way he goes about his work. He kind of know, he's kind of confident in knowing what he's about to do because he's, he's, it's not a mystery, as it were, because he's not allowed it to be. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's part of what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I think Larry. Well, let's listen. Larry is never at a loss for confidence. <laughs> Larry is a very confident guy, and like I said earlier, I think maybe my biggest takeaway was his will. He's very strong will. He's going to get it done. Mm. He's going to figure out a way to do stuff, and for the most part, without permits, especially and in New York City. 
And New York City was a very tough place to shoot back in the 70s and in the 80s. <clears throat> it improved somewhat when the, when the city kind of became involved and they made permits easier to get. But Larry, Larry's out of his office. I don't need any stinking permits. I've seen, the clip you know? in, I've seen the clip in your documentary of the God Told Me To bit about sneaking in the real parade and all that kind of stuff. With Well, yeah, that's, that's his masterpiece. And, um, you know, basically, for people listening to this who haven't seen the movie or, or, or you know, my documentary, obviously. Yeah. In New York, one of the big parades is the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And basically, there are, Larry said, 5,000 cops. Let's say there were 5,000 cops at the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Even yeah. if there are only 1,000, it's still 1,000 cops along the parade route. Well, Larry said, well, we're going we're to sneak Andy Kaufman in there in a cop's uniform and film him marching down Fifth Avenue with all of these cops. He literally stole the St. Patrick's Day Parade as a location and as and I've as got I've literally got goosebumps just thinking about the notion that the the balls on the man just to even think that was possible. <laughs> well, as I think I said, I, I was talking to somebody else about. It. I said, you know, Larry's got Larry's got big ones, and they do claim. <laughs> Does he? Does he? I mean, just one last question for you, Steve. Is is he? Does he place much store in his work? You know, because as a man, if he's if you say he's a man that still writes to this day, every day, and he's got this 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 archive of him just trailing behind him, that you can have a episode Columbo, you can have a black exploitation, you can have a contained thriller, you can have this, you can have that. Does he place much store in the work that's been and gone, or is he forever just going to the moon? You know, this is only a guess on my part. Okay. But Larry is one of those guys who I think wanted to be Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. I think Larry wanted to be Michael Curtiz. I think he would have loved to have been a Warner Brothers director back during the heyday. I think he wanted to do A pictures with A stars. And I think that Larry, while he's got a strong association with horror, mm-hmm. He's really, in his heart, I think a guy who would have been happy just doing thrillers his whole life, much like Hitchcock. Right. And at one point, he was going to work with Hitchcock. A movie he did called Daddy's Gone Hunting, which he wrote back in the late 60s with um, Lorenzo Semple, uh, wound up uh, going to Mark Robeson to direct. And Larry was really very unhappy about that. And I think... You know that that what that's what that movie in a sense kind of propelled him into trying to be his own man. Okay. You know, he said to he, he said to his wife, I said, I you know I'm tired of people ruining my work. He says, I want to direct my own pictures, but no one will hire me. And then his wife said, Why don't we hire you? Because he, they were very very comfortable after a decade of working on television. He created five series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. freelancing all over the place. So it's not like he didn't have money. It wasn't like, how are we going to be able to do this? They figured out a way. But in a sense, you know, Larry, I always got the impression, well, listen, I think every creative person wants to be someone else. I think, I think every filmmaker wants to be Steven Spielberg, especially to me, the Steven Spielberg who made Jaws. Yeah. You know, which I, which I think is a perfect movie. You know, I think everybody wants to be, to have the same kind of career as those they idolize. And I know that, that Larry, you know, Larry's a huge Hitchcock fan, and I think Larry wanted to be, in his own way, a version of Hitchcock. Um, I think we all want to be more than what we are. I think, you know, that's how you, that, that gives you propellant yeah, yeah, to get yeah. up in the morning, especially as a creator, you know. And, but I think, in a sense, Larry's also, Larry also realizes, and Larry has some perspective at this point in his life, you know, that, that, he made movies that people are still talking about. Yeah, yeah. His movies have longevity. They, they, they exist in the larger pop cultural fabric of, of film. Mm. And, you know, listen, there are a lot of directors who get paid billions of dollars and they have, they have unbelievable amount of resources and they make these movies and they open up on Friday and by Monday, they're almost forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Larry's work is not forgotten. In fact, there's a lot of Larry's work for fans to try and discover. Yeah, I mean, I, I only discovered Bone 
God, five years ago? And it was like, mm-hmm. one of the, it was like a mythical film that I knew about. And I just, you know, you'd never get around to, I eventually got around to watching it. And I couldn't believe how transgressive and progressive it was as a movie. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you something that's very interesting. I had never seen Bone until we were starting to review all his movies for, uh, for this documentary. I'd seen most of his movies. But, you know, Bone had kind of slipped through the cracks and became yeah. home video. Mm. You know, uh, a very nice version of that exists now. Yeah, and I was sitting and I was watching it with one of my producing partners, uh, Matt Burboys, uh, and we were both really kind of, you know, affected by it. And you know, the, the, the picture was a huge flop. I mean, it was it was an incredible flop, no matter how they tried to sell it. In England, I think it's called uh, a Dial R for Rat. Yeah, yeah, I've heard, um, I've heard it's that not time. called Dial R for Rat. It's something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And Nobody knew how to sell the picture. Well, to me, the movie is, a, is almost like a piece of theater. And Larry's also written plays, too. And we don't really cover much of that. Uh, just, you know, his career was too big for one documentary, and he says that at the end of the picture, to some mm-hmm. degree. Uh, but Bone is more like a play. And you say, <clears throat> what if that had been a big hit? Larry's whole career might have gone in a different direction. Mm. You know, that because Bone has no real genre to it. It is just this very bizarre piece of black comedy. But it, but it's, but it does, uh, do you think it was, excuse the pun, do you think it was too close to the Bone, though, for 1972? Um, personally close or just in terms of, uh, you know, socially close? I think so. I mean, I, mean, I, I think I, socially. I think <laughs> socially, because in, in I watched it in 2016, and I can I can compute what it's saying and what it's commenting on, but I don't think people are being that in your face with that idea of you know modern living, what 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 it was like to you know married couples, the race relations, the idea of sexual assault, all these things that are flying around that movie, which are happening for reasons that aren't just straightforward narratives that you know you normally associate with with those issues in isolation. He's throwing them all in one pot, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, that movie was ahead of its time. But mm. if it was, but if it had found an audience, well, I think Larry's career might have spun off in a different direction where I think he would have gotten around to doing genre stuff mm. because he likes genre stories. Mm. But there's always a level of social consciousness in all of his pictures. <laughs> I agree. They're I not agree. just movies that exist in movie world. They're, a movie that, they're movies that exist in the real world. And the real world always casts uh, a shadow or uh, a filter over the world. Yeah. And, um, but that's, that's a very interesting movie, you know, in a lot of ways because Larry, Larry Cohen, as we know, it could have been maybe a completely different filmmaker had that picture been a hit. <laughs> but the flip side was because Yafikoto gives such a brilliant performance in that picture. Yeah. That Sam Arkoff called him up and he says, I hear you're good with these black pictures and we're doing black pictures at AIP. And Larry said, well, I happen to have a script in the car for a movie called Black Caesar, which was just Larry rewriting Little Caesar, <laughs> but with a, with, a, you know, with a black slant on it. And that's kind of how Larry's <clears throat> Larco, the, the commercial side of Larry's Larco career got started. But the flip side was, even with Bone not being ahead, Larry wasn't affected by it financially. His career wasn't in trouble. Yeah, yeah, Worst yeah. case scenario, if he hadn't gotten the Arkoff phone call, I think he would have just continued writing television and did your scripts. But, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about. Well, no, and, and, yeah, I can't wait to see the, the full documentary get the story. Because one, one of the things that, obviously, just, just preparing to talk to yourself, I was just looking through his track record and... And I've always just thought of him from bone onwards. That's that's kind of how I've considered. <laughs> and then to go and look and go, hold on a minute. There's a whole like root and branches below bone of. And if you you think like you say, he's created TV shows. So if 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 Larry Larry Cohen was to come forward like the 35 year old man today, he would be like Netflix and Amazon would be all over him like a rash, wouldn't they? They'd be like. Probably. <clears throat> you know, and, he, he's and, creating TV series. I just wasn't aware of that element of, of who he was. I always think of his films more than his TV. And, you know, not just writing on TV, but 
But the idea of creating TV shows as well is, you know, yeah, he's a, he's well, a, and the and the thing and the thing with Larry is, I'm sure it wasn't even remotely daunting. Right. Okay. He just had he just had the idea and he carried it through. <clears throat> you know. And again, even his TV series had a certain kind of subversiveness to them. You know, I mean, The Invaders, which is probably one of his most famous, mm -hmm. uh, uh, was basically a, a show about communism. You know, right. so he couldn't he couldn't write a show about communism. But you know, he said, "Well, what if they were? What if they came from outer space?" Yeah. But he was essentially writing a show about communism and the threat of communism. Um, you know, he did a show called Coronet Blue, which is about to come out, I think, on DVD here in the States, which was a show that came out as sort of a summer filler show. Back in the days, you know, every once in a while a new show would go on television, and it was a show that was just being, being sort of, you know, played off. You know, they made the show, they didn't know what they were going to do with it, and then they would just burn it off during the summer. Yeah. And it was a show that I was aware of, and it was... And it was never resolved, so you never knew what the mystery was. But basically, it was a show about a Russian agent who loses his memory, and he has amnesia, and he's trying to find out what his story is, and he was basically a Russian sleeper agent. Wow. And, and, and then every week, you know, people were trying to kill him. So in a sense, and we have, uh, we have somebody say, the born identity before the born identity. So even in his television work, there were these bigger ideas. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just about, you know, hero, bad guy, plot, resolution, epilogue, which a lot of television was back in the day. Larry's, Larry's shows always had deeper ideas. So Larry was always going to be Larry one way or the other, I think, regardless of how his career panned out. Well, look, thank, thank you very much for, for, for going and making the film that looked at what he's been doing, because just from this conversation, he's... He's a much, there's, there's, I mean, there always had to be more layers to him than I would appreciate and know, but just this conversation alone, I feel like, I feel like there's so much more for me to go in mind now in terms of Larry Cohen, but plus, I, yeah, I can't wait to see what, 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 the, what the other, the people talking on your, on your documentary tell me about their experience and their observations of them. So thank, thank you very much for, uh, for taking time to come on the Britflix podcast. No, it was, my, it was my great pleasure. I can, I can talk about Larry all day. And, and Larry can talk about Larry all day, too. You have been listening to... The Britflix Frightfest Preview Podcast. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.